You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. I am Brian Sullivan. Happy Wednesday. Happy St. Patrick's Day. And oh, happy Fed Day. And it is no doubt a big day for everybody because as the market starts to throw a taper tantrum these last few weeks, Fed Chair Jay Powell may have to walk a very narrow tightrope to get it right in about an hour and a half's time. No rate hike expected today, that not likely until next year at the earliest, maybe 2023. But this is still a crucial meeting because the bond market is starting to scream inflation, but the Fed seems unconcerned. The bond market has had a Brobdignagian-sized move, up 1% off the low in yields last year. And that move has hit stocks as well. Basically, yields move up and high growth, fast-moving stocks like tech tend to move down. So there you go. Just under an hour's time until that call, then a presser. But let's see how your money looks right now. Dominic Chu joining us. Dom, how do the macro markets and some of the individual stocks appear on this Wednesday? All right. So, Brian, we've got a very stable market so far. What you would expect to see ahead of a big rate announcement. Again, you're not expecting to see really anything coming from the Fed. And for right now, we're seeing outperformance in the Dow up a modest two tenths of one percent. But as you can see here, relative to the rest of the market, the S&P is off one half of one percent. Big tech dominates that particular index. And the Nasdaq composite, for sure, very tech focused here, down about one and a third percent ahead of that big Fed rate decision. Speaking of interest rates, we just showed you those 10 year rates climbing to those highs. What we don't show you very often is the move in 30 year, the U.S. Treasury long bond, if you will, 2.428 percent. The last trade there just off session highs. At that point, we were just around 2.447 percent in the overall rate for the 10 year or the 30 year long bond. By the way, if you go all the way back, this is 2019 back to where we saw this level for the 30 year long bond. So, again, even longer term interest rates moving up in that kind of regard. And like you pointed out, tech and financials. Two very important parts of the market here and moving in opposite directions given the rise in interest rates. Apple, Microsoft, mega cap technology off two and a half percent and one and a half percent respectively. Meanwhile, large cap banks like J.P. Morgan Chase up one half of one percent and up three quarters of one percent on the day so far. These banks tend to do a little bit better when interest rates are on the rise and short term and long term rates gap apart. These ones tend to do worse when rates rise because valuations become a concern. Keep an eye, Brian, on mega cap technology and, of course, mega cap banks as we head towards that big rate decision. I'll send things back over to you. And look how it just worked out. You had two down and two up, and then you circled them, and it all worked out. It's amazing how that happens. Symmetry. Dominic Symmetry. You got, you got the, you, you're cutting the corners on the green, my friend, with the pocket square, but I'll give it to you. I'll see you in person soon, Dom. You Thank got you. It. All right, so... Let's say laser-focused on the bond market, shall we? Because with a 10-year yield hitting another new one-year high today, where will stocks go? So ahead of the Fed, let's go to Rick in Chicago. And, you know, Rick, my parents always told me not to confuse what I wanted from what I needed. Very different things. So I'll ask you both. What does the bond market want from the Fed? And what does the bond market need from the Fed? What the bond market wants is a life of its own without some thumbs on the scale trying to keep rates lower than they ought to be. Just think about we're still buying $120 billion a month, $80 billion of treasuries, $40 billion of mortgages. What it needs? Well, what it needs is a very difficult question to answer. I think we need to ask investors what it needs because they're really at the end of the food chain with regard to that meaning. And what they want and what they need now are rates to reflect the real risk 
versus reward profile, and they do not. Uh, Brian, uh, very quickly, you know, 30s are now comping all the way back to August of 2019. And you're right, January of 20 for 10s, the yield curve tends to twos, five and a half year wide. And if you consider right now that the Fed is trying to, in essence, not take away some of the requirements for capital that were designed to prevent some of the negatives for COVID, when we were going through that period, the SLR, that's called capital requirements, that's supposed to expire at the end of the month. And that's going to throw a lot of additional treasuries on the market for sale off of balance sheets. And guess what? That's probably been part of what has been pushing interest rates higher. Rick, what if we get this? I don't think we will, by the way, but you never know, right? I mean, these are human beings and they're prone to change their mind like everybody else. What if we get some sudden hawkish turn? I mean, not super hawkish, right? Go from a dove to a pigeon or something. What would the bond market and the equity markets likely do then? Oh, I think uh, I won't even answer it, Brian, because you know what? There is just no way that's going to happen. That is not going to be a combination of possibilities today. Janet Yellen, ex-Fed chairperson, is now head of the Treasury. Uh, Her replacement is now obviously chairman of the Federal Reserve. And the two of them are not going to give up the dovish camp uh, at this point in time and see everything that they have worked for, everything they have pulled forward, everything they have almost insisted be done with regard to fiscal stimulus. They're just not going to clear the zone now. The real question is, what's going to happen if we get closer to 2% and we see a real negative feedback loop in equities and other investments like corporate securities? Are they going to ramp up the purchases? This is a game of chicken between investors and QE. Yeah, and a very a trillion dollar game of chicken. By the way, a lot of birds mentioned there: doves, pigeons, chickens. We'll see what happens. Hopefully, the markets. Yeah. All this foul language, Brian. Rick, we're thank getting you very in trouble. Much. Yeah, foul language. Thank oh, you. you. Oh, you know, Rick. That was good. Appreciate it, buddy. Oh, I got nothing for him. Rest of the <laughs> thank show, you. I quit. All right. So, what about other parts of the markets and your money? Why don't we dive right in? Joining us now are Stephen Whiting, Global Chief Investment Strategist at City Private Bank. Subhadra Rajapa, head of U.S. Rate Strategy at Societe Generale, and Julia Coronado, founder of Macro Policy Perspective. Uh, Subhadra, I'll start with you. Do you believe there is, as, as Rick said, a, approximately a zero, no chance at all of any hawkish turn by the Fed today? I, I agree with everything that Rick said. I think it's going to be very, very tricky at this meeting, what the, what the Fed says, says. In some respects, they have to sound optimistic. Um, but at the same time, they have to be very careful and not sounding very hawkish. And that, I think, is going to be very, very difficult because, you know, since the last time they up- upgraded the summary of economic projections, you've gotten close to $3 trillion in fiscal stimulus, which means they're going to have to upgrade their GDP forecast. They're going to uh, probably reduce the unemployment rate forecast. Um, but what do they do with inflation? So the bond market is very, very concerned about the what-ifs because, what if they do, did believe and show in their economic projections that inflation is going to go higher? Then they're going to have to adjust the 2022 and 2023 dots, um, you know, to sort of counteract that that rise in inflation. That those yeah. what ifs are what the bond market's really concerned about. Yeah, well, right now, Stephen, if you look at those, and I hate talking about dot plots, but I guess they matter. There's mm-hmm. one dot above; it's a flat line for this year. 
pretty much a flat right. line for next year with one dot up, I think, 25 base. I mean, it's ridiculous and everything like it. But should they just put ridiculous, out the same yeah. statement they did at the last meeting? Because if they change the language, even by a word here or a word there, the market's going to read into it. You have to really ask, is it the bond market or the economy that needs the rescue? Right. We have a richly valued bond market. It's more rich around the world. I know that we've had a 40 year bull market in bonds where yields always came down and rarely stayed up for very long. But we've had yield curve steepening in every economic recovery, even prior uh, to that secular bull market. Uh, and if the Federal Reserve wants to somehow stomp down on the long end of the bond market, somehow target long term rates, it's going to take a lot of firepower, a lot of easing in the face of this. And as you just heard, we've just now had uh, an additional two point seven trillion dollars in stimulus this year <laughs> while we're coming out of covid. GDP growth could be close to six percent this year. Inflation for the rest of the year will be over three. And you can see this already in pricing. Mm. Now, that's not permanent. When you have these sorts of stimulus efforts, as we saw in Japan, there are going to be many times, it's not going to be a permanent new rate of growth, but they're going to have to again articulate that we can suffer through this if, as a bond investor for a while, uh, and in the long run, they will do the right thing and normalize policy, but that's still way out there. You know, Julia, I don't know if you ever saw the documentary Man on Wire about Philippe Petit walking between the World Trade Centers as well. I kind of feel like Jay Powell is that person on wire right now, along with the rest of the Fed. And, you know, an error here, an error there, given the trillions on the balance sheet. I mean, let's not forget the Fed's balance sheet is basically double the annual budget of the entire United States of America. Six or seven unelected officials are running a balance sheet twice as big as 535 members of Congress. Do you think Jay Powell has what it takes to get from one to the other without falling? You know, Brian, I think in some senses what Jay Powell has is an embarrassment of riches. Um, for years, decade even, the Fed has been hoping for more effective fiscal support for the recovery, never got it, had to repeatedly do QE. Now, for the first time, the Fed has a partner uh, that is going to more effectively channel resources into the economy. And all it has to do is say it's going to be patient. And the Fed has what, what Powell has been reiterating lately, which is a little bit different from the market narrative. They have a very disciplined approach to parsing out transitory versus trend movements and in inflation. Uh, I think it's not that hard to walk that line because they can say, look, we know he's already been saying we know there could be some pops in prices here and there. But we're f- focused on the trend and the trend has been low for decades. Uh, we will Definitely, they're definitely going to be more optimistic on the economy, more optimistic on employment. But the feed through into inflation over the next few years, over the longer term, and therefore policy is going to be considerably more muted. So I don't think it's that hard to square this circle. He can sound more optimistic and also say, but remember, uh, these trends have been very low and we're going to wait till we see it and then we'll react appropriately. I just wonder, Stephen, we're trying a monetary response to a global health pandemic right. and epidemic. I don't know if low rates are going to are going to put people back at work if their kids aren't in school. I mean, how do you increase the jobless rate or you know, the working rate by, by lowering rates when a parent says, well, I, I can't go to school anyway? That's a different argument. Your clients want to know how to profit off all this, protect their wealth, preserve their wealth, grow their wealth. How are you advising them to do that? 
Well, lots of moving parts, but for one, uh, we are seeing mean reversion in the economy, in markets. So COVID is not unstoppable. We'll get past this. Uh, so some of the things that responded already, like small cap stocks in the United States, uh, rallied 90% from April lows. But there are good uh, parts of the world and other parts of markets that have further to go. Um, U.S. real estate, Latin America stocks, United Kingdom stocks at uh, 14 times earnings, horribly held back uh, by both domestic political issues, which are unwinding, uh, 4% yields, uh, and uh, an industry that's been highly exposed and battered by COVID. So it's mean reversion of those things. Then you have to consider that as rates are adjusting yeah. upward, we're seeing some of the valuation excesses in tech roll off. But there will be there there'll be growth at the end of the day yeah. uh, for those companies too. One final quick one to Subhadra. Where do you see the 10-year yield in six months, Subhadra? So our forecast for 10-year yields for the end of the year is 2%. We're already at our forecast for mid-year in both 10s and 30s. So I wouldn't be surprised if we actually continue to see uh, you know, rising yields over the next six months. Stephen, Subhadra, Julia, thank you very much. We'll let you guys go and get ready because the main event's coming in about, I don't know, 50 minutes or so. Thank you for your insight. Always appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. All right. We have so much still to do here on the exchange on deck. When you think of a, quote, value stock, do you think of Amazon? Probably not, but you should. So says one analyst. We're going to find out why. And remember, as we just noted, less than an hour away from the Fed meeting and then subsequent news conference, 10-year yields not moving a whole lot right now. They are up a little bit, 166. We're going to watch that because it matters, even if you don't care about bonds, to your stock investments. We're back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. A lot of you investors out there may be wondering, what's wrong with Amazon stock? Despite booming during lockdowns, shares are actually only up 2% in the past six months, basically flat. In fact, Amazon is one of the worst performers in e-commerce. Faster growers like Wayfair, Etsy, Shopify outperforming anywhere between three and ten times as much as Amazon. Maybe they're the, the new Amazon. But your next guest says that Amazon may be about to take off to four or even five thousand bucks a share. Let's welcome in Colin Sebastian, managing director and senior analyst at Baird. Colin, good to have you on the program here. You'll forgive me for looking down. I want to read parts of your note. With the market currently focused on rotation to value rates, reopenings, and tough e-commerce comps, we believe investors may be missing one of the most compelling subscription and quasi-subscription models within the IT sector. And there's a path to 5,000. Break it down because, you know, next quarter is the quarter when they boomed. I don't know how they match those numbers. Yeah, thanks, Brian, for having me. So I think uh, what's, what's missing when investors are currently very focused on the macro environment and not fundamentals is, is that Amazon has some really amazing long-term growth opportunities. And, and the stock is trading at a pandemic low in, in terms of valuation, as you, as you outlined. And in, in terms of recurring revenues or quasi-subscription, uh, you have the, the core e-commerce business, which is driven by prime subscribers and third-party sellers that are locked into Amazon's ecosystem. And then, of course, Amazon Web Services is a, essentially a, a cloud subscription business. 
So all of that, it means high retention rates, low churn, uh, low customer acquisition costs. We think this is one of the best models out there and, and currently does not reflect it in the valuation. Okay. Quasi-subscription. What does that mean? I, I see it as a subscription. If you're paying Prime every year, auto-renew on your credit card, you don't even think about it. Why quasi-subscription? Yeah, fair question. So there are subscription elements specifically to Amazon-like Prime, but, but really I'm talking about the whole business. So all of the spending that those Prime members make, uh, they generate the vast majority of sales on Amazon. So they are subscribers, but a lot of the retail revenues on Amazon are not specifically subscription revenues, but we think are quasi-subscription because they are tied to those Prime members. What's the biggest risk to your four or $5,000 price target, Colin? Honestly, I, I think... Besides not I hitting think, it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think largely macro. Uh, I think investors are concerned that if the growth stock uh, rollover continues, that support levels are, are pretty far below where we are today. Obviously, we look at it more from a fundamental basis. Shares are trading at essentially a five-year five -year low, uh, pandemic period low for sure. So on that basis, we don't see it as, as a significant risk. Uh, we hope it gets to 4,000 this year, which is our 12-month price target. We think 5,000 is achievable. Amazon will be generating a trillion dollars wow. of volume within three to four years. Uh, and, and we think that's, as I said, not recognized in the, in the current valuation. On a human note, Colin, you know, reading your, your report, one thing that did surprise me was that you really didn't mention Jeff Bezos, at least not in the early pages. And I thought, this is Bezos's baby. I mean, SFOW, sheer force of will from that door desk they started with in Seattle. Are you convinced that Jassy and others on the management team can step in and just fill the shoes of Bezos? Or is Bezos still the man behind the curtain? I think he is still involved. He will still be involved. He's already distracted by other projects. I think, uh, you know, we joked that Andy Jassy is going to rename Amazon to AWS. So uh, while that might not happen, <laughs> uh, it clearly shows the focus the company has and the board has on, on Amazon Web Services, which could be the biggest piece of the business in, in five or 10 years. Uh, but no, we expect uh, Jeff Bezos to be involved. He's chairman. Uh, he'll be involved in any big decision. And I think he's already yeah. relegated a lot of the decision making to others at this point. All right, Colin Sebastian of Baird, $5,000 long-term price target, $4,000 near-term. Colin, a pleasure. Fascinating stuff. Have a great day. Thanks, you too, Brian. All right, I want to get to a market flash here. Thank you. Shares of 3M are starting to trend lower, and it follows some comments that were just made at a virtual J.P. Morgan Industrials conference. And it sort of plays with right into what we've been talking about with the Fed and inflation. We don't have the audio, but we'll read it to you. The CFO of 3M saying, quote, we had started experiencing three kinds of inflation, raw material, labor, and logistics. And that trends of inflation continue. So inflation is creeping into head in a few places. Certainly, folks, keep in mind the labor side of that, millions out of work because of the pandemic. But according to the government, there are still 6.9 million open jobs in America. It's going to be a lot of competition for that work. And 3M laying out price inflation, Trucking inflation, shipping costs, remember the container story, and labor inflation. Just something to watch with 3M up there and scotch tape and post-it notes in Minneapolis. All right, coming up, 
In addition to impacting pretty much every aspect of our lives, the pandemic has also shed light on a behavioral bias in investing. How? Well, we're going to tell you and what you may be doing wrong because of it. And maybe the T in NFT should stand for taxes instead of token. Because if you want to buy crypto art, the tax man may come in. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Here's how your money and investments look right now, about a half an hour before that Fed decision. And then, of course, you got the press conference after that. And the presser is going to matter more than the statement. I'm just going to throw that right out there. I opinionated, all right? Dow Industrials up 56 points. NASDAQ down a percent. Watch technology because the Federal Reserve impacts bond yields. As we've seen, if bond yields go up, technology stocks have been, doesn't mean they will, but they have been going down. NASDAQ down 1% right now. So you may not care about the Fed. You may not care about the bond market. But if you own stocks, you need to care about both. That's the point. Industrials, financials, and materials, your leaders, technology, and utilities are some of the biggest laggards on a sector basis. And here are a few big stock stories happening right now. Number one, plug power. It needs a stopper for all the selling. Shares getting crushed right now. Companies saying that it made accounting mistakes. It's got to restate results. Markets don't like that. Plug power down 13%. Another news, shares of VW and BMW, German car makers, both higher. They outline plans to double down on electric vehicle development and production. Volkswagen up 11%, BMW up 6%. There you go. The next two names, though, they are tough. Uber, investors losing about 5% on their investments right now, following a big decision in the United Kingdom to classify drivers as workers. Uber says it will reclassify about 70,000 gig workers as full-time employees. But your disaster du jour is a name we talked about in Texas a couple of weeks ago, a name to watch. That is NRG, the power company, losing steam right now, off 16%. NRG saying it is posting a $750 million loss from the storm and from the Texas blackouts, having to go out there and buy power, lose revenue, etc. It's also withdrawing its previous guidance for the full year. NRG, a name that we highlighted a couple weeks ago in Houston, down 16%. All right, let's step outside of the world of money and business and get a CNBC News update for that. Rahel Solomon. Rahel. Hi, Brian. Hello, everyone. The Biden administration is sending $10 billion to states to expand coronavirus testing in schools. It's all part of a plan to get more schools to open five days a week before the end of the school year. Dr. Anthony Fauci and CDC head Dr. Rochelle Walensky laying out timelines for getting children vaccinated against COVID-19. They expect that young kids will get their shots by the first quarter of next year. And Fauci says that high schoolers can look forward to their vaccinations much sooner. For high school students, it looks like they will be available to get vaccinated in the beginning of the fall, very likely for the fall term. And learn more about plans to get students back into classrooms on the news with Shepard Smith. That, of course, airs tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. And some telemarketers in Texas have been hit with a record $225 million fine. That's for robocalls that offered fake health insurance. It's the largest fine in FCC history. The FCC says that the group made about a billion calls in less than five months in 2019. Brian, I'll send it back to you. Rahel Solomon, Rahel, thank you very much. Appreciate it. 
You know, folks, what's amazing about that is about 30 to 40 percent of kids in school never missed a day or hardly missed any days at all. Truly is sort of two worlds out there with regards to schools. All right, coming up, the Bitcoin bonanza booms on. And in yet another CNBC scoop, Morgan Stanley may become the first big U.S. bank to offer some clients access to Bitcoin funds. We've got the exclusive detail. But right now, it's show and tell. Or if you're on the radio, we call it tell and tell. We're going to show you a chart and tell you a story. Today's chart is Disney. Stock making a move after CEO Bob Chapek telling Julia Borston when Disneyland in California will reopen. Here he is. After a year of being closed, I am absolutely thrilled to say that we're going to be welcoming our guests on April 30th back to Disneyland. It's been a long, long time since we've been able to create magic for our guests and put our cast members back to work and help the associated businesses around the Anaheim area. It's going to be a great opportunity, I think, for us to bring that magic back to everybody involved. All right, welcome back. Well, you can add another big name to the list of companies buying into the Bitcoin boom. CNBC.com has learned that Morgan Stanley is set to become the first really big U.S. bank to offer clients access to Bitcoin funds. Sources saying there are some client eligibility restrictions, yes, but it is still another huge step toward mainstreaming crypto. So more, let's bring in Hugh Sump, CNBC.com banking reporter, who broke the story, as we expect you to do, Hugh. You break news left and right and and then they pop up on TV. It's amazing. Uh, what can you tell us? What decision, what changes are Morgan Stanley and its team making here? It's a pretty straightforward forward one, Brian. You know, all across Wall Street, we have these wirehouses, whether they're Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, uh, B of A's Merrill or UBS. And, you, you know, they cater to people who are at least in the sort of single digit million dollar uh, asset class, uh, AUM class. And for the most part, these are people who are increasingly getting intrigued in Bitcoin. You know, they look at the charts, as we've talked about on, on your shows before, and, you know, they're intrigued and they want exposure and they want to do it through the safety of these wealth management platforms that are obviously well-regulated, well-controlled. And, you know, Morgan Stanley being one of the biggest, if not the biggest, with $4 trillion in assets, has finally said, look, we are not going to decide whether or not this is necessarily a good or bad thing. We acknowledge that clients want this, and we're going to we're going to expedite this and allow this. We're going to allow them to do it through three third-party funds. Two of them through Galaxy, obviously, you know, who's, you know, and these are Mike Novogratz's firm, and another through another firm. And we're going to allow people to actually hold close to a direct ownership in Bitcoin, which is a new thing, you know, for for the world of, of, of Wall Street for sure. I assume they would only do that, Hugh, because banks, you know, sometimes have a profit motive. Just throwing that out there. If there was client demand. You know, the client demand uh, is the motivating factor. They cited that, you know, the sources I spoke to cited that directly. And so, you know, you have people clamoring for it. And, you know, it's not like there, are, there aren't other ways to get exposure to Bitcoin. If you, uh, you know, if you've, if you've got a few million dollars, you could do it directly. You could do it through Coinbase. You could do it through Coinbase Pro. You could do it through other things. And yet, you know, if you are a high net worth individual and you've got all your other asset, assets being held, you know, in trust, by Morgan Stanley or another firm, it really is much more clear and simple and succinct if you own it together and it's part of uh, you know a percentage of your overall 
holding. And by the way, you know, Morgan Stanley, they're 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 requiring people, uh, capping people at two and a half percent. So they think it's perhaps you know uh, an interesting good idea to have a speculative uh, investment in this, but they want you to do it at a maximum yeah. of two and a half percent. Still big story there, broken by Hugh Sun of CNBC. Hugh, always a pleasure to have you on, my friend. Thank you very much. Great stuff. Good work. All right. Well, from artists to athletes and musicians, it seems like everybody is talking about NFTs. Now, for the uninitiated, and don't be afraid if you are, trust me, it's confusing. These are non-fungible tokens. Basically, in a super basic way, a way to turn something digital, like digital art or maybe a video highlight of LeBron James, into a -a one-of-a-kind piece of work that is based on the blockchain. Yes, a little confusing, but it's red hot. And either way, you got to take note. Because if you are using, if you're super cool and you're using cryptocurrencies to buy a non-fungible token, you may be in for a rather unpleasant tax surprise from another three-letter organization, the IRS. Robert Frank has more on that. Robert. Yeah, so much jargon and acronyms, Brian. It is very confusing. But let's just say that investors and collectors have poured over a half a billion dollars into these new NFTs, and many could face big tax bills they probably are not aware of. And the reason is an obscure IRS rule around cryptocurrencies and the so-called disposition of assets. Let's explain. Here's an example. Say you bought $100 worth of Ether back in 2018, and it's now worth about $1,800. If you use that Ether to buy an NFT, you would owe capital gains tax on the $1,700 gain of the Ether as part of the NFT purchase. So as soon as you bought that NFT, you would owe a capital gains tax of $340. If you own the crypto for less than a year, that's a short-term gain. You could pay over $600 on that $1,800 purchase. Now, the IRS considers crypto a capital asset not a currency, and if you exchange crypto for any good or asset, you immediately recognize a capital gain or loss. That's the rule. Experts say most people who are buying NFTs today are using Bitcoin or Ether that's appreciated, and they're not aware of this tax. On top of that, most NFT platforms that sell NFTs are not reporting the taxes to the IRS because they don't have the price history for crypto for each buyer. Now, lots of people are also flipping their NFTs for profits. Keep in mind, they would pay a 28% tax on that NFT gain since capital gains tax on collectibles, that's NFTs included, are higher than for other assets. So there's really two taxes to keep in mind here, Brian. One is when you buy it and one is when you sell it. Back to you. That's a big deal, Robert. Well, first off, they're not currencies. I mean, I know I'm probably one of the few that says that they're not currencies. Currencies don't act like that. And the government just said they're not currencies because the way they tax it. But let's take a different tax. Forget about NFTs. Let's talk about a giant mansion in Miami, shall we? Let's say you're super smart and you bought a ton of Bitcoin at a thousand bucks, right? And now it's worth 50,000 and you're sitting on millions in gains. You sell your Bitcoin to buy a $5 million waterfront home, you know, in Miami. Are you then also subject to those 20% capital gains rates or higher on that $1,000 to $50,000 move in your Bitcoin? Because that could be a a multi-hundred thousand dollar surprise tax bill. Absolutely. And that's why a lot of buyers of these NFT are overseas buyers that are not subject to tax. Because just about anything you do with crypto, if you're a U.S. citizen, will be taxed. Because as soon as you exchange it for anything, whether it's a hot dog or a Miami mansion, 
you are paying the capital gain on that increase in the crypto. And you're right. That proves, once again, from the IRS point of view, it is a capital asset, Mm. not a currency. Really fascinating stuff. Be careful. The tax man cometh. All right, Robert Frank, fascinating. Take care. All right, still ahead. COVID not just impacting how we work and live and play, but also how we all invest. The common behavioral biases affecting portfolios that were tweaked or maybe exacerbated by the lockdowns. And with the price of nearly everything going up, 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 commodities, food, housing, will the Fed shock the market and put on its hawk's hat or will the doves They still fly. Stay tuned for that in the exchange. We'll be right back right after this. All right, welcome back. Well, the investment profession is known for making rational decisions based on hard numbers. Sometimes. And if the pandemic has shown us anything, though, it is that things can get emotional in the markets, in our lives, whatever. And Wells Fargo Investment Institute is out with a look at how extreme swings, the upside or downside, can create some behavioral biases. Joining us now is Veronica Willis, investment strategy analyst for the Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Veronica, you know, most of us, you know, who can are kind of sitting at home and looking at our portfolios, most of which have gone up. What kind of mistakes are we making now? What kind of behaviors did we have before that maybe got exacerbated during the lockdowns? I think that the big one here is that recency bias. A lot of people, myself included, are guilty of that one. And that's just where we believe that the market will continue to behave as it has recently and then use that as a baseline for future expectations. So when the market is going up, you think that it's going to continue to rise, that the ride will be smooth. And that's not necessarily what we're seeing. We've seen some volatility. So it's very crucial when you are facing a recency bias to make sure that you're sticking to your plan and that you don't deviate from that plan to take on more risk than you're intending. Well, you know, listen, Veronica, there's a lot of new participants in the market, which, by the way, is great. Retail investors, we love it. Come into the market. We want young people because they grew up to be old investors that have been in the market since the railroads, Veronica. You know, everything's kind of gone up lately. It's really easy to think that you're super good at investing. I hope we all are, but history says that's not the case. And I think that's where that overconfidence bias comes into play, where you think you, you know everything and you're making the right decisions. But I think the important thing here, if you suffer from the overconfidence bias, is to keep on educating yourself. An educated investor is a good investor, and we can all learn more about investing and knowing what we're holding, making sure that if we have a plan, we're sticking to a plan. If we don't have a plan, then we're reaching out to an investment professional to figure out what that plan is and to make sure that we are reevaluating that plan when we need to. Well, you've got the friend that jumps off the cliff into the lake, you know, without really paying attention to the risk. That's the one end of the spectrum. Then we all have the friend who sits there thinking about it all day until it gets dark and then we go home and they have regret aversion, right? They, They just can't, they're frozen, they can't make a decision. We all know those people. You can't be that person either, right, Veronica? Don't do that. That's absolutely right. You'll be way too conservative, especially if you're looking at a long-term investment. So if you're investing for your retirement, 
And if you've got this regret aversion, you're too afraid to make these decisions. So you put them off or you completely avoid making those decisions. And your portfolio may be too conservative and you're not allowing it to grow. I think you have to challenge yourself a little bit to get in the market and realize that over the long term, the market moves higher. Your plan is there to help you weather that short-term volatility. And so I think that's why it's so crucial to have that plan so that you are prepared when there are downturns, because that's an inevitable, inevitable part of the market. And that's usually when it's a good time to get into the market when those prices are yeah. low. Uh, good, good emotional. It's an emotional game. Money is emotional and stocks are just another form of money. Veronica Willis, great advice. Have a great day, Veronica. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Coming up, rates are on the rise. Builders are starting to feel a little more bearish and supply of homes is tight. All that heading into the traditional booming spring housing season. But are we near a tipping point after the buying panic of last year? Diana Olick is here with some housing red flags. And as we head to break, a reminder, it's Women's History Month. And so all month, we are spotlighting some of our CNBC contributors and friends. Here is Aureus Asset Management CEO Karen Firestone on what empowers her. Empowered by the fact that I believe in myself. I was one of the few women who worked uh, at Fidelity, but I thought I can put my mind to something. I can research a company as well. I can understand stocks. I can manage a portfolio as well as the guys. And I just had to remind myself of that all the time because I was so dramatically outnumbered. But I, I thought I can do it. And that's what kept me going. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Well, fresh data, not old, rotten data, fresh data out today that could be signaling a turning point for the housing market. But in, in which way? Diana Olick joining us now with the numbers. Diana. Yeah, Brian, you could really see this coming, given how much demand for housing was pulled forward by the pandemic last year. Home prices are now overheated, mortgage rates are rising, and the market simply needs more houses. But the builders took a step back in February. Both single and multifamily housing starts fell to the slowest pace since August. But I want to focus here on single family because that's where we have the record shortage. Single family starts were down for the month and flat compared with a year ago. You can blame some of that on cold weather in the South, but not all of it. And take a look at permits, an indicator of future construction, down 10% for the month back to November levels. Now, this number should have been higher given that we're coming into the usually busy spring market. It may be concern over rising mortgage rates, which combined with higher prices are knocking some buyers out of the market. Rates are still slightly lower than they were a year ago, but prices for new and existing homes are way up, really negating any help from low rates. Now, it's worth noting that the number of single-family homes permitted but not started construction continued to increase in February, up 36 percent compared with a year ago. And that's because builders are delaying some projects due to higher costs for materials and continued delay in getting those materials. Of course, these guys seem to have got it, Brian. Yeah. And speaking of inventory, it's almost like no homes in the market. Are people starting to put their houses on the market again, given spring is usually the best time to do it? Or does spring not even matter anymore? 
You know, interestingly, they're not. The realtors are saying that they're just not seeing more people put their homes on the markets. Number one, they have to buy something if they're going to sell something, and they don't want to buy at a higher mortgage rate than they already have. Another thing is they're concerned they won't be able to afford that other home once they move out. And they're just concerned that at this point, they're not going to get the kind of demand that they want. People are going to be coming in looking for lower prices. They don't want those lower prices. So you're not seeing that. In fact, you're seeing a lot fewer homes come on the market than normally at this time of year. Well, maybe bad news for realtors out there. Diana, look, thank you very much. Fascinating story. And that does it for us here on The Exchange. Going to hand it over a bit early because we are just a couple of minutes away from the Federal Reserve's rate decision, then press conference. That's all on Power Lunch. We'll see you tomorrow. Dow 45. Have a great day. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.